Hello, everyone. Welcome to another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. This is Tessa. As usual, I am your host. <laughs> I'm very honored today to bring you a... What is the word, Tara, for you? You're, you're special. You're amazing. You're unique. You're hilarious. I love your writing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And so, Tara, here you are. Yes. Here. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. yeah of course. I kind of feel like... And this this might sound kind of weird, but I, I wonder if you get this as an author because your writing style is so conversational and I feel like I can identify with so much of what you're saying. Um, I feel like I know you already. And granted, we've already had a conversation on Radically Loved and now we get to talk here on Outside the Studio. We have had a bit to a bit of time to get to know each other, but it just feels easy and conversational. Well, good. Yeah. Yeah. I do get that. It's funny. Um so I get that quite frequently. Like, I feel like I know you, or I feel like we're already best friends, which is awesome because I definitely, the only reason I wrote this book was to make other people feel less alone. Mm. So the style, like my editor and I just like labored over every word, like so sweaty and like me reading it aloud, like 10,000 times to make sure like, well, how would I say it? And how would I do this? And like, the difference between when you make a contraction like you're or you are like, yeah. so it's actually like a huge compliment because that part was really hard. Um, and it's, but it's funny when people I've just met tell me a detail about my life that we've never discussed. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm like, we didn't talk about that, but sure. I put it out there. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. That might, that might be a little bit I don't know. I mean, I think that's one of the things about being in the public eye. It's like all of these things come along with it, you know. It's a that... total pleasure. I have zero complaints. I feel so lucky to get to do this and get to meet so many cool people. It's yeah. just funny to me. I'm like someone said, yeah, like your ex-boyfriend who refused to get you tea. And I'm <laughs> like, I haven't talked about that in a year. So you definitely read that. Um, but yes. yeah. <laughs> But it feels like we're fast friends on this side as well. Oh, good. Well, so let me just give, for those of you that are not familiar with Tara's work, you may be familiar with her name. You might have heard it from uh, Comedy Central. She's a former executive um, at Comedy Central. And you were responsible for uh, talent. So talent and development, which talent means you find comedians and then you help develop shows around them. Wow. That sounds really cool. It's the coolest day job on earth, according to me. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you're the expert, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. But these days you spend your you spending your time writing. This your your second book is coming out in February. Yes. Um, Glow in the Fucking Dark. Yes. And your first book, Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies, is already out. And I am blessed to have been gifted a copy of that, which I just fucking love. So thank, <laughs> thank you, you for writing it. Um, so there's some topics I want to cover today. I'll just give yeah. everyone kind of an overview lay of the land and then we'll dive in. So um, topics, I think you write more about this in, in glow in the fucking dark, but it's also themes that are pervasive throughout Lily's and they are recognizing trauma reactions and choosing new ways to respond to them, finding out what's really underneath your anxiety uh, repairing your relationship with your body and finding solace and purpose in something bigger than yourself, which 
I mean, damn, if we have the answers to to these questions, right? Like, I don't have exactly the answers. What I have are experiments and questions. Yeah. Like better, like better questions to ask yourself um, as you, as you move down the road in any of those directions. Yeah. Well, and I love that because I mean, we're all on our own unique journey. Um, Perspective is true for you. Whatever your perspective is, is your true experience. Um, And so when these things like trauma and anxiety come up and they're left unchecked and we continue to go throughout our lives like this, maybe we're not operating from our wisest self. Oh, hell no. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you felt anxiety, but I wouldn't call that bitch wise. I feel like it's like the most out of control part of me. Yeah. Well, and it's like, that's how I feel like I'm operating Okay, now I feel like my five-year-old self. I'm definitely not my adult self. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I want to talk to you about this from the perspective of now you're working more towards writing full time and and working as a mental health advocate. And so your your world, your life, your perspective is is a lot different probably than it was say a couple of years ago or maybe even pre-pandemic. Yeah. Um, and you talk about that in in glow in the dark when you're making that shift from the corporate work world to Mm -hmm. what you're doing now and how all of that came back up for you right throughout that transition. Um, so, okay. So I think the question is, let me just give you just a tiny bit more context in terms of where I'm going with this. And that is to say, I've had this transition, a similar transition where I was like, okay, I want to try this is a conscious choice. I want to try being an entrepreneur. I want to leave the nine to five job. I want to, um, you know, bank on myself and see if I can make something of myself as an entrepreneur. Um, and doing that is like terrifying and thrilling. Mm -hmm. And I've been at it now for what is this going on like three years? And I feel like because I'm in the realm of wellness and yoga, that we look at people like that in those positions as, oh, they must have all the answers because they're a yoga teacher or they know how to meditate. And and I'm sitting here looking at myself from the lens of oftentimes my childhood self, which who is traumatized and who is very anxious and who does have a hard time sleeping at night. But that is why I practice. That is why I have all these practices. That is why I've studied yoga so extensively, because can you imagine if I didn't have those practices? Like how would I even operate in this world? I have no idea. It would, it would not be pretty. So <laughs> with that in mind, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your transition and how these traumas came up for you and what those practical steps you took looked like. Yeah. So you know, I guess my first book, I didn't ever set out to write a book. I didn't mean to write a book. I meant to save my life. Um, because so I grew up in a neglected, super abusive household. It was psychologically abusive. There were physically dangerous things going on. Like my house was an open construction site for like five years, you know, and I'm five or six or whatever. And like, if you uh, went the, all the walls were like exposed plywood and um, insulation. So if you walked by one, like you could get a splinter, you could get like, you could catch yourself on the wall. Um, like the ceilings were fully exposed. It was just not a place to raise children. 
because my parents did not have the capacity to raise children, nor did they have the capacity nor the um, curiosity to find out how. So it was almost like a feral childhood in some respects. You know, I was, it's funny because I write about these things, I can now talk to my dad about them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very recently I, I was asking him, you know, I, I felt really alone a lot of the time, you know, what do you think of that? And he's like, oh, you were, because I didn't want to be around your mother and your mother was at work. So yeah, if, if you felt that way, it's true. And while that feels um, at first sort of devastating to hear that like you're alone, it's also so validating Mm because like, aha, the reason I feel lonely is because I was lonely for so long. And so basically the upshot of that childhood was I had out of control anxiety and depression. I was, you know, I was the girl like crying on your stoop. Just like when you see that random girl who's got like all those bags on her and she's weeping um, on your stoop or weeping in the subway, that was for sure me. And I didn't, I had no sense of what was going on. I was so overwhelmed. And as I walked through the streets of Manhattan, I just had this like diss track looping in my brain. Uh, You're ugly, you're unlovable, you're not worth anything, you're not worth anything. That was the number one takeaway I took from my childhood, that I was worth nothing. And so what I did was hustled for outside achievement to prove that I was worthy and lovable. And and it took the form of I ended up at Comedy Central and I just climbed the corporate ladder really quickly, pouring everything I had into that job to, to prove myself as I imploded inside. And it it might have just, you know, gone on this way, um, except I hit rock bottom on my 25th birthday when I drunk dialed my therapist and threatened to take my own life. And she took the threat so seriously that she was looking for me. You know, she was leaving voicemails being like, you need to go to the hospital. Like, where are you? You know? And so that next morning, it's like a special kind of shame when you feel when when someone reflects back to you how out of control you are and it really scared me um i realized if i didn't save my life i'd not i wouldn't have much more of a life to live and so that morning i just got really real and i said i didn't have parents who nurtured me i didn't have parents who loved me in a healthy way i don't want to be neglected anymore So I am the only one who can be my own parent. I am the only one who can give myself that kind of nurturing uh, and affection that I always wanted. And so I started a Google Doc where I just put down all my questions, you know, what are values? What are principles? What are vegetables? Like, what are they? Which one should I be eating? I still have these questions to this day. Um, (laughs) And I attacked it like a research project. You know, I would um, ask any adult in my life for advice. Anybody who I thought was like even somewhat stable, I'd ask them for advice. I read memoirs like they were self-help. I took copious notes. And at the end of five years, I had a 600-page Google Doc and just felt like a different person. And that's when I decided... You know, I feel like I can't be the only one who feels this way. 
Some people had childhoods much worse than mine. Some people had childhoods far better, you know, but it's pretty common that all of us have some holes to fill in. So my hope was that anybody on this journey at any point, uh, however, um, how much work they needed to do would enjoy the book because I use comedy to talk about anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, all these things. I try to make funny and light because, you know, what I say is like when you're sitting at the seat of your soul contemplating taking your own life, the number one thing you need is a laugh or a levity to like puncture the hole a little bit, or at least me, it really helps um, to have some kind of comedy because comedy always switches your perspective, you know? Um, Cause once you kind of laugh and there's like something, it's not just totally your story of doom. I find that very helpful. And so this next book glow in the fucking dark, you know, I had written by yourself, the fucking lilies. It's a, a book of all the rituals that I worked on developed like a journaling practice, um, a gratitude practice, meditation, or actually meditation's not in lilies, um, running, like some, most of the stuff is very basic. I'm just giving a different perspective on why it works and how it works. Because I think with most self-help, it's just be joyous. I'm like, cool. Yeah. I want to be joyous, but what are the steps? What are one through 10 of achieving that joy? And so I try to break it down in reasonable um, steps that anyone could take for free today. And so Lily's came out. I was still an executive at Comedy Central. I had, you know, even though I'd healed a lot, I still pegged most of my status to that job, you mm -hmm. know, to the extent that people introduced me like Tara Schuster, Comedy Central, like it was my married last name, you know? that like that was me and in the beginning of the pandemic i was laid off my whole department was laid off they they like basically shut us down and i had worked there one third of my life you know i it was it as much healing as i had done it that the status of it the respectability it was the thing i could point to and say hey yeah i had a neglected childhood but look at me i made it and what did it mean if I actually hadn't made it and my job was taken away? And in the context of the pandemic, when I was single as fuck and don't have family who live in LA and my family is a shit show anyway, and don't have, you know, don't have a partner alone in this apartment with no job, no scheduling to distract me, my deepest traumas just came surging to the surface and they wouldn't, I could not suppress some things any longer. And that's what glow in the fucking dark is about, is about when you're in those bleakest of circumstances, how do you find a little light, you know, and that light has to be your own. Like, how, how do you provide your own shine so that you're not relying on external circumstances or other people to give you that? Um, and so that's that's sort of the progression of the books. I I don't even remember what your original question was. I think maybe it was, what tips do you have? Um, or, <laughs> yeah, no, no, you answered it. My question was around that story of moving from the stability of a day job into yeah. this new world of, you know, what it is that you're doing now. It's like you're, yeah. you're carving your, your own path for yourself and you're doing this in the midst of like very intense trauma that's coming back up for you. Um, so that's what I was asking and yeah. you answered it. 
And just like Lily's, I did not start healing these bedrock wounds with the intention of writing a book about it. I was healing them because I felt 10 out of 10 horrible and like my insides were going to leap out from my skin, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I just use Google Docs like it ain't no thing. Like I, that's my everything is Google Docs. So again, I just kind of took notes and honestly, I had to do enough healing that I felt it was appropriate to put it in a book. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I try not to write about something unless it's a year after it's happened so that at least I have, you know, a modicum of perspective and growth. Um, And it was when I had done so much work that I was like, wow, my life is unbelievably better that I decided to write this book. Yeah. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about the title of the first book, um, By Yourself the Fucking Lilies, because there's a chapter in it that is the namesake of the title. Um, that for me is really helpful in terms of thinking about self-care, what is it? And mm. how do we approach that in our Western society? And what are some really practical tips to like, I love that about the book. It's like all of these tips and rituals that you provide, I can do those. I don't have to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars to go out and get a fancy coach and, and, cure myself with this mystical thing. It's like, these things are very accessible to me and I want to do them because, you know, it's, it brings joy into my life. So will you talk to me about that chapter as it relates to the title of the book? And I love your practical financial tips in there because I think these are things that we know, but we forget like, Oh, it's really that simple. (laughs) Yeah. And part of all this work, I, I find is just being repeated the same thing 55 times from different sources. And then eventually you're like, oh, right. And oh, right now I'm ready to try. So, you know, oftentimes readers, I talk a lot about journaling. They'll be like, is it bad that I'm journaling the same thing every day? I'm like, no, because something inside of you is saying, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. And when you finally do pay attention, you'll know it, you know, and, and you can move forward. Um, but to answer your question, so by yourself, the fucking lilies, that title came about because, you know, I thought I was worthless and that really took a good five years of deprogramming to, to like, I would never say that about myself now. That's not a thought I have, but that took a lot of intentional work. And so I, you know, I was on this reparenting journey. I was writing in my Google doc, And just coincidentally, I'd go to Trader Joe's, you know, to get my very budget meals. And I'd see these lilies in their weird bucket of water. And I'd just be like, oh, my God, those are so pretty. Oh, my God, those smell so good. If only I had lilies, lilies, like they're my favorite flower. They make rooms so elegant. But no, they're six dollars. I can't afford $6 and anyway, they're just going to die. So what would be the purpose in buying this, these flowers that are just going to die? And week after week after week, I would think this, you know, and think that I wasn't worth $6 to do something that just might delight me or just make my life a little better. And as I did all this work, I finally one day realized, what the fuck? Like at a minimum, I'm worth these $6 lilies. Like, 
why am I even working so hard at my job if I can't give myself this tiny, tiny pleasure, if I'm denying myself this? And I think a lot of people who've done this kind of work, um, recovering from trauma, you learn that you cannot beat yourself into healing. You know, you can't restrict yourself and criticize yourself into healing because that's what got you there in the first place. And you actually have to find a way to feel self-compassion, which is one of the number one hardest, for me, one of the hardest things I ever did was eventually feel self-compassion. But these things are possible, you know? So even, so once I started buying the lilies, you know, for myself, it gave me a little instant mood boost, a little more room. It gave me a little more stability because I wasn't constantly denying myself. And it speaks to this larger point, which is I think people think that their blowout wedding, the next promotion, buying a house, these big life events, that that's going to make their life better. When actually today you have the agency choice by choice to make your life better you know, and a, and a one way you can easily express that are in all the basics, you know, so this book could have just as easily been called buy yourself the socks without holes. Cause that's another thing that makes me respect myself and feel like delighted. You know, I'm never going to be embarrassed at TSA. That's just never going to happen to me. And it makes me feel like I respect myself and I'm worth socks without holes people have all kinds of things like buying blueberries at the farmer's market. I've heard people refer to a side order of guacamole this way. And it's so small and it's so big because once you start doing it repeatedly, you show yourself in the real world. I am worth care. I deserve to treat myself nicely. And, you know, and and just to be really specific about what we're talking about, I'm not talking about a vacation to Hawaii, you know, that that's going to make me feel better. That's fun, but it's not self-care. You know, these are like the very small micro adjustments you could make today, either super low cost or free and repeating them so that they're really a part of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. We talked about this on Radically Loved, but I, uh, my, my, buy myself the fucking fill in the blank is my coffee. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. We did talk about this. Yeah. And I think it's the point for me with that kind of conversation, and this deals directly with my um, my own financial issues, I guess, for lack of a better word, and, and my own uh, self-worth conversation around this ongoing kind of theme that seems to come up in a lot of relationships where I have to rationalize a 4 to $5 purchase when I can afford it maybe on a regular basis to my partner as something that I am deserving of. And it always felt like an argument about whether or not I was being frivolous with money or for me, it felt like, but I'm working my ass off and we can afford it. And this isn't going to make or break the bank in terms of our ability to invest money in the future or, you know, pay our bills or eventually buy that house. It is something that brings me joy. And it, 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 like you're speaking to, um, it speaks to my self-worth. Yeah. I mean, and we discussed it's 
that's also a completely insane, not born in reality paradigm that especially millennials, I think, have been sold that if you cut out the avocado toast, then you're going to be able to buy a house when in reality, generational wealth tax system that doesn't work for us, uh, prejudices, there's systematic reasons why it is very difficult to buy a house today, not the avocado toast, not the coffee. And it's used as a way to diminish ourselves. Oh, like you're so grandiose that you want the coffee, like you're frivolous. Actually, what if that one coffee is the thing that helps you work? You said you're, you know, you transitioned careers. What if that coffee was the one stabilizing treat that made you feel good in the morning so that you could do that work? How much is that worth? You know, so we have to be careful, right? Because on the other side of the coin, it's you're spending your way to mental health, which is not possible. So, or you're spending yourself into decadence thinking that's going to like fill a hole in you, not ever going to happen. So you do have to be wise about this small thing that brings me pleasure. Is it something healthy that can be done repetitively or is, or am I filling in a gaping hole with something else? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's such an important conversation to have. So I wanted to highlight that here. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to go back to something that you, you were speaking to just a little bit ago. And when you say things like, um, having suicidal ideation and then bringing comic relief to that, (laughs) it makes me go to this place of like being able to hold space for opposites. Um, the tragedy, of life and the beauty of life and allowing space for those concepts, those Mm -hmm. feelings, those sensations to coexist. And I love this. uh, I'm going to read a section of your book. It's on page uh, 111. This is in the gratitude section where you speak to this. Uh, So here's the direct quote. It's not that the painful stuff doesn't exist. Rather, two things can be true at the same time. You can be torn apart by the divorce of your parents, and you can be grateful for how it taught you by the opposite example, to find a life lived with stability and joy. You can be stricken with grief that you never had the relationship with your mom you deserved, and you can appreciate that it pushed you to find other mentors who opened up your world. You can hate your day job, absolutely dread going in, and you can be thrilled that you are taking singing lessons that make you feel more alive. The sooner you can, the sooner you can get comfortable with the ambiguity of two things being true at the same time, the sooner you will enjoy all parts of your life, even the not so great ones, because you know, that's not the whole story. I fucking love this, (laughs) this whole situation right here. And I, I often feel like I try to articulate this idea of there's, I do, are you into poetry at all? I wish I was. I feel like that would make me seem like a better person or more intellectual if I was, but no, but please, but whatever you're going to say. Well, so there's this, uh, uh, one of my favorite books of poetry is by Khalil Gibran and it's called the prophet. And, um, and I think this one, if you're interested in trying, you might take a crack at it's very accessible. It's not like the poetry that you feel like you have to really like understand what was going on behind the author. It's, it's accessible. And so the, my favorite poem is about joy 
and sorrow and how they coexist. And I'm going to butcher this, but I'll try it anyways. The line, something like, um, and your, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And how could it be otherwise? Because without the joy, the sorrow isn't as present. I can't remember. Anyways, it's like coexisting of joy and sorrow. So this is what you're talking about here. And I think, you know, I could just let you tell me about this experience, how this came to be something that you were able to articulate, to write, to realize, I guess that's what I'm asking is like, yeah, how did you get this out of yourself? (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, and I can also talk about it in the, in the context of my new book, because my new book is a, a lot more about this topic, which is we naturally want the world to be black and white. Mm-hmm. That was good. That is bad. I don't want this. I do want this. This is a win. This is a loss. It makes everything a lot, quote unquote, easier, we think. But really, most things are somewhere in the gray area. And it's not that you're um, engaging in uh, po- um, toxic positivity. You know, for example, um, in what you just read, when I'm talking about you didn't have a relationship that you deserve with your mom. I'm talking about me because I haven't talked to my mom in 15 years um, because she is extremely unwell. And I had to make a boundary where I said, my life is important. I deserve to be treated well. And if you can't do me that basic human courtesy, then I can't be open to you. And I had to draw a really strong boundary. And now something like that can feel oh man, this terrible thing happened to me. I don't have any relationship with my mom and all my friends do. And what have I missed out on? And sometimes I go to that place. It would be impossible for me not to. And I can recognize, I mean, I have an unbelievable circle of friends. And, um, you know, I was writing someone an email today where I just said, I can't believe the two line of this email. I can't believe you're all in my life. This is the most incredible group of people. Wow. So I'm not saying that it's not sucky that I don't have a relationship with my mom. All I'm saying is, and I have all this wonderful abundance because, you know, we tend to see the nightmares and the problems and have utter amnesia for anything that is delightful or nice in our life. And it's actually um, a bit of wisdom and a skill to develop being able to feel both of those things at the same time. And gratitude, the reason it's in that chapter is because gratitude flips the narrative of I'm not enough, I don't have enough, and practically shows you if you write it down wait a minute, here's an inventory of other things that are true. So sometimes I ask myself when I'm in like a terrible spot and I'm jealous and I'm this and I'm that, I ask myself, what else is true? What's the bigger picture? What does it look like if I open the aperture on this moment? And um, very frequently that punctures the feelings of overwhelm. And when I get completely taken over and um, swamped by, you know, depression or anxiety. It's just a a very helpful tool to help you change the narrative pretty quickly. Mm, Yeah. I want to talk about anxiety. Yeah. Um, I think so many of us experience low level and I should speak for myself really, because that's all I can really do is 
I experience a low level of anxiety. And I think it often for me comes up when I'm trying to be still, like, for example, trying to go to Mm. bed at night Mm -hmm. um, or waking up in the middle of the night after a dream. Um, So what are your thoughts on how, how do we uncover what is underneath our anxiety? What is causing it? What's the root? Yeah. So this is something I write about um, extensively in the next book, Glow in the Fucking Dark, which is, I believe that in our society, it is much um, easier to label women as just anxious. She's anxious. And sometimes to label ourselves as anxious as opposed to looking at the very real reasons we have to be anxious. You know, for example, the world is burning down. Due to the climate emergency, literally we're destroying our planet. We're With all the political things that have gone on in the past couple of years, with all the reckonings that are going on, those are justifiable reasons to be anxious and to be afraid. Like that's really real. And But what I think is like, for women in particular, it's like, you know, how many times have you heard this? Well, anxious, um, being, you know, I'm anxious and I know it's irrational. It's like, is it though? Like, is it actually irrational? And one of the things, you know, how this came up for me was I had a boyfriend. Um, actually, I'll back up. I was going to a psychiatrist because my friends were like, SOS, you need, you need to go to a psychiatrist. We want you on drugs. Um, because I had just experienced um, a very severe bout of um, suicidal ideation. And I was like dead set against it. I felt like I wrote a book on this stuff. I have all the rituals. I should be able to handle it on my own. And I just Mm -hmm. did air quotes. And I knew that was ridiculous, you know, and that um, pills are not something to be ashamed of. It's not like a stigmatizing thing. Basically, everyone I know is on some form of medication. Um, But I felt really um, anxious about it. So I had all these rituals and I was just dead set against um, going to see a psychiatrist because I felt like I shouldn't need this. I shouldn't need a crutch. I should be better. But it honestly, you know, I knew intellectually that that was ridiculous and that pills aren't any kind of crutch um, and that most of the people I know are actually on them. And I was in bad shape. And if you do ever need a crutch, it is when you are dealing with suicidal ideation. So because they kept protesting, I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And I, you know, was talking to the psychiatrist and telling her my own, you know, I've worked through so many issues of my childhood. I have, you know, blasted through so much trauma. It doesn't make any sense why I'm this anxious. And she asked, well, tell me a bit, a little bit about your life. And I started describing my boyfriend at the time who was constantly lying to me, like, oh, like about little stuff. Some of the time, like he rented, he, he said he bought his house, like, oh, I bought the old so-and-so house. And it's like, well, I knew he rented something like really small, or this isn't in the book, but he one time told me that he bought a copy of my previous book from every bookseller in America, every independent bookseller in America, which could be done but highly unlikely that he did. And when I followed up with, well, do you have a list? Because that would be really helpful to me. It's on my laptop in the office in Chicago and I'm not going to be there for many weeks. So no. 
I'm like, okay. So it kept, I'd never been in a situation like that where somebody constantly lied, like even about where he was from. You know, I was on a dating app. It said Kansas. But then when I talked to him in real life, it was New York. Like, so I always felt uneven. um, And it kind of had escalated to this point where I was 10 out of 10 anxious all the time because I was being like kind of lied to all the time. And what I realized, you know, I was in a follow-up session with my psychiatrist and, you know, I was like, so why am I so anxious? Because even I intellectually understand this guy shouldn't be pushing me to this brink of 10 out of 10 anxiety when I wake up. And she said, she looked at me and she said, I don't think you're anxious. I think you're furious. Mm. And I was like, whoa, wait, what did you just say? And she explained to me how anxiety is oftentimes a secondary emotion that if we don't know how to feel, like growing up, I grew up, you couldn't feel angry. You had to stuff that down and not say anything, which I think a lot of people can relate to. So I actually don't have the vocabulary for a lot of feelings. I don't know how to express that I'm feeling those things. And so I usually say I'm anxious. And once she said, you know, the word furious, I was like, yeah, I'm actually full of rage at being lied to constantly. That's actually what I feel. And so now I ask people to question, is it really anxiety that you're feeling or is it um, sadness that you don't know how to express? Is it rage at something that is justifiable? Is it, you know, I actually say to people, use an emotion wheel to even know what the other emotions are that you could possibly feel because we are so often reduce our whole experience to I am good, bad, tired, like those words. It's like basically all we say we are, like we're out of practice in identifying our emotions. Mm -hmm. So even if we were to Google emotion wheel, you'd have access to like 40 things that you could be feeling. And once you start to heal that root, my fury, my sadness that I didn't have a partner, my loneliness from my childhood, all the stuff that was underneath the anxiety. I don't want to jinx myself, but I rarely feel anxious now Mm -hmm. because I'm dealing with the root thing, not the anxiety, which was just pushing down everything that was below the surface. And so I know there's some people who are chemically experiencing anxiety. It's some, you know, and I know that there are some people they're just through and through anxious. And I respect that feeling and that that state. And that sounds horrible. And I think there are a lot of us who just don't know how to feel the way we feel. And so instead we get the buzzy, tinny, tingling feeling of anxiety in its place. Mm, yeah. Oh, that's so, I love that. Um yeah, that vocabulary around how are we feeling and how we reduce our feelings to basically, you know, the default of like three words, right? That's so yeah. helpful and illuminating. And do you, is that something you could share? I wonder if I could put that in my show notes. A yeah, emotions. I, I think so. Let me, we need to ask my publisher, but I'm cool with it because the book's not out yet. Right. Well, and this probably won't. Here, I'll pause this for a second. So I can note for my editor. Hey, Ernie, we might have to edit that section out, but we'll see. I'm just going to clap. All right. So, Tara, uh, I would I would like to talk about repairing our relationships 
with our bodies. And I'm thinking about this in the context of, I'm thinking about in um, Lily's when you talk about um, learning how to, well, you, you basically like taught yourself how to run and <laughs> yeah. be connected to your body and get into your body and make yourself run as a means to feeling better or like doing something different. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think about that from the perspective of, you know, I think there's a tendency to kind of swing the pendulum the other way and over exercise, you know, or, um, hide our feelings or, and I think there's that you can have a healthy relationship with this in terms of your relationship with the exercise, of course, just like yeah. with anything you can yeah. take it the other direction and have an unhealthy relationship. So tell me your thoughts, if you would, on repairing your relationship with your body. Yeah. I mean, I despised my body for most of my life. And, you know, what's so sad is I can't really think of that many women who wouldn't say the exact same thing, you know, and it makes sense in a society where it's, you know, a multi-billion dollar business to make women feel bad about themselves and thus buy products that are supposed to make us feel good about ourselves, but we wouldn't even need if we didn't feel bad about ourselves because of how these industries make us feel. You know, it's like a never ending negative feedback loop. Um, and I, in particular, I really like hated my boobs. Like I, I like had a big chest and, um, felt like I looked matronly and like just this one massive boob sheet on top of my chest. And that, you know, and at the time, the the most beautiful women were like Kate Moss. This was not the Kardashian time. I did not grow up in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was super, super stick skinny, which I've never been. Um, and so as time went on, you know, I I felt increasingly bad about myself, learned some ways to help myself. You know, in my first book, I write about how I bought um, bras to honor the part of my body that I hated, mm-hmm. the fancy, beautiful bras or interesting, colorful bras. Cause I, again, we cannot beat ourselves into healing. It, generally we become stronger when we are kind to ourselves, you know? So that was very, very helpful. And, you know, for some reason in the pandemic, I just really wanted washerboard abs and became really obsessive about it. Um, you know, to the point where like I wasn't eating and I've, I've never really, I, I don't even know what the definition of a eating disorder would be. And I haven't been in therapy for that, but it was really extreme. And I would wake up at night really, really hungry. And I got, um, a trainer on zoom and he was sort of helping me with this ab journey, until, you know, one day I was like, fuck it. I can't, I wasn't getting abs. I wasn't going to get abs. It just wasn't going to happen. And I finally said to him, like, I give up on this. I'm too hungry. I'm too tired. I can't run and exercise two hours a day to achieve this. And he was like, yeah. And you probably never could anyway. And I was like, wait, what? And he was like, well, a lot of women like to protect your reproductive organs. That's where you store. That, that's why a lot of us just have a little bit more right there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, what? Like, why didn't you tell me this on day one, Vlad? Like, what is up? He was like, who am I to tell you what to do with your body? I'm just here to support you, you know, whatever you want to do. And it was at that precise moment that I kind of realized 
this thing I've been lusting after isn't even probably possible for me, but how grateful am I that I've been running and doing these activities and have a body at all? And when I could tap into that, that it's actually pretty magical that I can run, that I can like leap up. Um, I love to hike, that I can leap up a mountainside because that's not given. That's just something I take for granted, but it is not given. And so I feel like we get bogged down in these very political conversations about body positivity. And are we going too far on that spectrum? Are we? And I'm just like, everybody shut up. Here's what to do. Body gratitude. Mm -hmm. Do you have a body? Is it working at all? Are you alive in this moment? Are you able to breathe? Because if so, oh my God, you have a lot to be grateful for. And again, it isn't to deny the chronic pain, suffering, disease that all people go through. People might be now, and I can only imagine I will go through, you know, within my lifetime. And so we should be grateful for the moments where we are healthier. We do feel some kind of joy. And so I think it's really about, for me now, it's much, it's not about being skinny. It's not about weight loss. Those, those things are irrelevant to me. What it's about is feeling good. You know, exercising is just a really natural way um, to ward off depression. I wish someone had told me that, you know, when I was like 12, mm -hmm. that moving my body was actually one of the most effective ways um, to combat depression. Um, if you're 12 and listening to this, get started right now. Um, but um, it's been really mind changing. Like, fundamentally changed my life. Instead of thinking about like what I want my body to do or what I want it to look like in the future, how grateful I am for having a body right now at all. Yeah. I love that perspective. It's so, it's such a helpful reminder, even though I feel like I've, I've had a very sordid relationship with my body is like you said, most people can probably relate to so much judgment and trying every single diet under the sun and exercising myself to the point of exhaustion, yeah. but remembering to be grateful that I can, I can literally get up, go outside, go for a walk, go for a bike ride, go for a run. And that feels like my connection to myself, my deeper self, my sense of spirituality is just being able to be outside and be active in my body. So it's such a yeah. nice reminder to be grateful for that. Okay. So I want to be mindful of your time. I do want to touch one last yeah. topic slash uh, question. And this is the idea of purpose, um, mm. our purpose, finding something bigger than ourselves. And this is the ethos or the idea behind the podcast itself for me. And I often like to um, relate it back to a, a line from a poem that I love. <laughs> um, and it just this one little line is uh, from Mary Oliver. And she mm -hmm. says, tell me what it is you will do with your one wild and precious life. So I'd like to end on that subject slash question. Yeah. So um one of the big essays in my next book is is precisely about this, which is, you know, when I was little and I was like alone and really scared, I I wanted to find God because I went to a Jewish um, kindergarten where they exposed me to the word God, which is something my parents would have never said. 
And uh, they were like strict atheists who thought religion was for like very weak people. And that's how I grew up. Um, but at school, they were like, hey, there's this generous spirit of creation in the world that loves you as you are. And I was like, and that is always with you. I was like, oh, oh man, like how much do I want that? I, I My two parents are not acting that way at all. Maybe this could be my third parent, you know? And so I'd go on the patio of our house. And for some reason, there was like a pipe lying in a, a bed of begonias. I'm betting it had to do with the construction. And I would just like bang it on this jacaranda tree, like screaming out like, God, like, do you see me? Like, are you here with me? I, as these like the little purple uh, blooms would like shake off onto me. And I never had no sign ever arrived. The only thing that was kind of interesting was in the canyon, my voice echoed. And so I always felt like, oh, there's like a little something else paired with my little voice. And so I went on this like kind of journey through my 20s into my early 30s to like find something that I was a part of. And, you know, it's a long story about being on birthright and Yad Vashem and like, you know, going to find some semblance of God. And what I kind of landed on was my connection to other people is what God is to me. You know, my relationships, one of the central things I talk about in Glow in the Fucking Dark is that you are literally made of stardust. That is not some like cute fable, sweet thing to say. The elements that are in our bodies came from stars, from the Big Bang, from these, you know, celestial things that happened. And we all are full of the same exact stardust. And to me, there's nothing more magical um, and loving that that idea that like there really is nothing. We have outside containers, outside vessels, but otherwise there's nothing different between you and me, you know, like your healing is my healing. My healing is your healing because we're all stuck together on, on this earth. And it's very freeing once you begin to realize, oh, we all started with the stardust self and we all express it in a different way, but no one is better or worse. We're all just kind of the same. And for me, it's this really important play between the universal, we are all the same, and then the utterly unique, which is, and you express yourself differently than how I express myself. And each expression of this animating force is fucking beautiful and cool and different and worth being taken care of. So for me, it's like the pull, the, the play between the individual and the universal and our connectedness that that, that is my feeling of purpose that we're here to connect we're here to build relationships why else would we all be made of the same stuff if that wasn't the case mm -hmm. and so i feel like that got real woo woo um but i don't know that's really just made my life a lot more enjoyable yeah i love that answer and, and woo woo is very welcome here i always felt like because i grew up in a family that um was you know, what we would consider the quintessential hippies, my parents, they were, 
And, you know, they did the whole San Francisco in 1969, hate Ashbury experimenting with psychedelics and all that stuff. Um, my dad made drums. He was part of a drum circle. I mean, we had a sweat lodge in our backyard. So woo woo is something to me that's not, I don't know. I feel like woo has a weird kind of a connotation in our, in our modern day society. And I'm like, but that's what, that's all the good stuff. (laughs) But it's a, it's a defense mechanism, right? Even for me, which is if you reject that, I just went on this whole rant about my stardust self. I can just be like, well, it was really woo woo. And anyway, Mm -hmm. moving on. So even when I say that it's a defense in case you don't like what I just said. Ah, look at you. See, this is so wise. I love this. and. Yes. So thank you. Thank you for that beautiful answer. And I appreciate it. And, and I love it. And I love the, um, recognition of the connection that we're all part of this great big human family and, and not just humans, but all sentient beings, you know, think about the animals and the trees and everything that we depend on. Um, we're, we're all dependent on this ecosystem. I would love for you to say where people can connect with you, you know, on the socials, if that's something you do and where people can go to, to get your books. Yeah. So on the socials, I'm Tara Schuster on Instagram and that's, uh, I'm trying to make a little corner of social media, less hellish. I can't promise that it's always less hellish, but the intention is to create that space. And then um, if you subscribe to my newsletter, which you can do at taraschuster.com slash newsletter, or if you just go to taraschuster.com, you just click newsletter. Um, I, every week I have one short and sweet essay about what I'm working on in self-care and the latest. And that's also where I write with readers. You know, um, I read every email that's sent to me. I reply to most. And it's a lot easier to do that through email than DMs, though I do love when you slide into my DMs. And the book can be bought anywhere, hopefully at an indie bookstore. Ask for it and they can order it if they don't already have it. And then, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Target, anywhere books are sold. Mm, Yeah. Tara, it's such a, really, it's it's hard to articulate how much of a pleasure it is, but I, I do appreciate your time and thank you so much for showing up and sharing your wisdom and your grace with us. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new, maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, so Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't, you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic musical genius Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. 
Thanks, you guys. You make my world go around. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.